Yeah. Hi, everyone, and good afternoon. We're going to get started. Ding, 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 ding. going to have to dig a glass or something. Huh? Can we ask people? Yeah, imagine I'm clinking a glass right now. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start talking as the, as the sound sort of quietly dies down. Welcome to Who Will Define the Marketplace in Our Future. Uh, welcome to uh, the lunch session today. I'm Derek Thompson. I'm a senior editor at The Atlantic. I'm joined to my right by Mark Schlegeter, uh, Managing Director of the Americas for Thomson Reuters Financial and Risk. David Weinberger, uh, Senior Researcher at Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet Society. He writes about the internet and ideas and has for 25 years. And finally, Andrew McAfee is the Principal Research Scientist at MIT and co-founder of the Initiative on the G Digital Economy. He writes about robots and how they're going to take all of our jobs and why you might maybe just possibly be okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, to get started, the concept of a consumer-led marketplace is a little bit nebulous, so I wanted to give us a concrete example on a topic that I've looked at a little bit uh, in the last few months. And that topic is pop music. In the last half of the 20th century, you can make a good argument that pop music was one of the most corrupt industries in America. <laughs> you would have labels, pick artists, and then pay radio stations to play those artists. This was called payola. The Justice Department got involved and shut it down, or at least did its very best, because they had to try to shut it down very many times. The reason this was such a powerful thing, that they could pay the radio stations to play whatever songs they liked, is that we tend to like just about any poppy, repetitive song that we hear 17 times. You've probably had this experience a thousand times, where you hate a pop song the first time you hear it, the second time you hear it, you're like, okay, I sort of begin, I'm beginning to understand this. Three times later, it's in your head, you can't get it out, and then a hundred times later, you're totally sick of it. So this is how music was for 50 years. It was a top-down business. Today, when you go into music labels, they're looking at Facebook, they're looking at Twitter, they're looking at Shazam, this amazing app that allows people all over the world to hold up a phone and identify songs. They're looking at us. They're trying to put their ears on our ears. And so what used to be a classically top-down business is now very much, they would acknowledge, a bottom-up business. They can't necessarily force us to like songs, but they're trying to predict, trying to see what songs we're listening to right now in order to define the marketplace of music. We're defining it with the data that we emit simply by listening to songs on, um, on digital radio and on iTunes and things like that. So we're going to talk a little bit about consumers and how consumers are defining all sorts of marketplaces outside of music. Mark, the first question is for you, and I want your reaction. Is the story that I just told teaching the wrong lesson, or is it true that consumers are now more important than ever in determining the products that we see and the stuff that we buy? I believe that um, online marketplaces were the most significant disruptors that we've seen uh, really in the past 20 years that affect all of our lives. And I think now the consumer... I should. Um, I believe what has occurred uh, over the past, let's say, 20 years since um, Amazon really started the e-commerce trend is that online marketplaces are really the biggest disruptor that we see affecting many of our, our lives. Uh, when I think about how my life has changed over the past 20 years, what habits I have now online, how I do consume. I do most of it over the internet. I'm sure many of you do too. I think the story that we just went through uh, is accurate, and I think there's examples of uh, other consumer-driven trends happening all the time. I think TripAdvisor is a great example of it. I also think that 
when you buy something on Amazon and you are very focused on buying one item and they refer another, that is really consumer-driven. It's much more analytical than it's ever been in the past. And the reason that we accept it is because of the ease of doing business over the Internet, of consuming over the Internet. It's more convenient. It's faster. We're in a position where we have more information. It's more transparent. And lastly, you can get it done and move on to something else. And I think that is a radical change from what occurred before, for example, what the example you gave in, in music. And I, I believe that consumers are going to continue to drive marketplaces more and more into different areas uh, that benefit them. Uh, David, you described yourself as a depressed optimist. When I hear Mark's story, I hear convenience, I hear efficiency, I hear saving us time. What could possibly be wrong? What could possibly be bad about a system defined by Amazon recommendations that are constantly giving us what we want when we want it? Uh, Culture is not driven forward, nor do we become better people always by being given the uh, thing that is rattling around in our head because we've heard it five times before. Um, so I actually, so that's the press part. I, sh- I, I want to be careful. I'm fundamentally optimistic, and I share your enthusiasm, both of yours, and I know Andrew's as well, for uh, the transformative effect that the, that the web, the Internet and the web have had on um, the power dynamics, in, in, especially in markets, so that um, we are, as markets, as people who are engaged in conversations with one, one another, now in control in a way that we absolutely were not when marketing was a matter of driving messages in, into people's head. But let me give you the counterpoint, because I'm a huge user of Amazon. I love Amazon. I'm mainly going to say negative things about it, but I am a total prime crack addict. Uh, the UPS truck just stays in front of my house, <laughs> doesn't even go back. But let me give you the, the sort of negative side of this, which is that um, and of big data, too, which I'm hugely enthusiastic about um, uh, for what it does for science, for example. Nevertheless, one of the wonderful things about big data is that it finds correlations that we didn't expect because we didn't have a hypothesis or even a theory for it, and sometimes we cannot explain the correlations, and that's wonderful. That's a way of, of finding out things that we would never have found out before. But suppose it turns out that Amazon discovers with its wealth of data that people who just ordered... Gone Girl, the ending is terrible, by the way. <laughs> People who just ordered, it's great up until then. Was that a spoiler? No, it's not a spoiler. Okay. I, I think the movie's actually changing the ending. Yeah, so I hear. But that's a spoiler. It's a bit of a sidetrack, though. <laughs> <laughs> Where was I? So that uh, Amazon discovers the people who've just ordered Gone Girl are 4% more likely to order in their list of recommended books or um, the book that has a green cover or has a smiling woman on it or has uh, Helvetica type. Uh, Who knows? Some correlation. And so Amazon will, for good business reasons, put that item in front of us. That's big data. And it works. That's why Amazon is doing it. But then you can ask yourself, because I've worked in library innovation technology for the past five years. It's been my day job. You can, so my example is, suppose you were to ask a librarian what your next book should be. The librarian would not respond in sort of this lizard brain way saying, oh, green cover, let's see what we have in green. The librarian wouldn't even say, well, the librarian might say, oh, you like Gone Girl? Then you'll probably like this, because it's very similar in many ways. But, and here's where the real value comes, there's a book that's not really like it exactly, but I have a sense that if you like it, you'll probably like this, even though it's not exactly a mystery or whatever. The librarian, the human, will move you forward 
and introduced you to something that you wouldn't have found otherwise and which might have the effect that we all want culture to have on us, which is to make us, in some sense, I'll leave it very undefined, better. And so there's a danger to um, engines that address the needs that we've already expressed. <clears throat> this is a really interesting point that ties a lot into the music story because musicologists that look at the diversity of chord progressions, basically the interestingness of music, have, have seen that as music has become more and more democratic in terms of how the labels pick bands, it's also become more derivative. Because if all you do is become a master at figuring out how do we produce something that sounds just like the last pop hit that Americans loved, it turns out that you make music that's less interesting, that is less diverse, that is less experimental, that perhaps moves us forward and makes us more, more interested in, in complicated music. Um, uh, Andrew, we're coming to you. Andrew's extremely excited about the Chile game, and I'm here to tell you that I've been checking my phone. It is still tied 1-1 in the 95th minute. I, I think we'll hear if there's a development from upstairs. We'll hear, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that'll be our data. Um, so for centuries, economics has been defined by scarcity. It's been how we use scarce dollars on scarce goods with the scarce time that we have. One of the interesting themes of your book is the power of robots, of automation, and of collaboration between robots and people, that we're actually entering a new reality of abundance. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what that new reality is and how it changes this consumer marketplace. When things get digital, they tend to get kind of strange from an economist's perspective because digital things can be very valuable without being scarce at all. We can just replicate digital stuff very easily. It leads to some interesting developments. Mark, I'm completely with you that the Internet has been the biggest disruptor that we've seen in industry after industry. And to make that concrete, Derek, I'll go with the industry that you started us with, popular music. The size of the recorded music industry in America now is is it 30% smaller or 50% smaller than it was 20 years ago? It is shrinking year by year. Are any of us listening to less music than we were 20 years ago? You know, absolutely <clears throat> not. So we need to be a little bit careful. The, the people trying to make revenue off of recorded music are unhappy about some <clears throat> of these trends. All of us as consumers should be incredibly happy about all of these trends. And because of this world of big data that David brings up, we're learning some really interesting things about ourselves as, as consumers in every sense of the word in this digital era. Um, it turns out that we think we have taste. We kind of don't. And we are, we're, it's so easy to influence us that it's actually a little bit weird. I've got these fiendishly clever behavioral economists and scientist colleagues who set up these experiments where, for example, in one digital sandbox over here, they introduce people to one set of, to a set of music and they say, hey, this stuff is this, this artist or this song is really good. In this other digital sandbox, they put the same body of music out there and they say, this other artist, this other music is really good, and watch what happens from there. It turns out we just behave like, like sheep. We just follow whatever people tell us. So the idea that, that the Internet was this beautiful, pure place for us to express our desires and then bad old corporations came along and ruined it, that's a little, that's a little halcyon. That's a little oversimplified <clears throat> in my world. And, David, I'm not sure that, that a world where librarians recommend books to me based on what librarians like is by definition better than Amazon recommending books to me based on what millions upon millions of other people, their express preferences. I, I just, I don't see a clear superiority there. Um, better in, in what way? Better in, more likely... Better in the same, nebulous, want, than, in the same nebulous way that you used it. <laughs> I used it in two ways. One is to give you... A, no, no, well, so one, one is giving you a book that you were more likely to like 
a thumbs up. The My other, Amazon recommendations have done great by me. And the other is to give you a book that will do the job that, in general, we want culture to do, which is to somehow expand our interests. Yeah, I'll take Amazon over a librarian, and right. I like librarians. But what about what about an Amazon-powered librarian? I mean, isn't that one of the one of the <laughs> truly that there must be many? Uh, Amazon's rather easy to, to to go look at. It's it's that combination of human and robot, uh, or human and, and, and uh, automation, that, that you said is, is the most valuable in your book, that, you know, that, that automated, powered individuals who have all this information and have the sort of unduplicable power of just human insight. Properly, con the, properly the configured combinations are the right answer. So if I had to pick, the, the properly configured combination is choice number one. Algorithm alone is choice number two. Al Improperly configured as choice number three, and human alone is choice number four. Okay. So there's, there's a fifth choice, which would be my response to your, your dissing of librarians. <laughs> You're going to be set upon by a flock of angry librarians, my friend, and that is not a pretty sight <laughs> to see. In so many ways, that's not a pretty sight to see. <laughs> see, I see two hands. So um, the, I don't think this was on your list, but the fifth is, um, so I, I, I would rather, so I, a good librarian is a treasure, but a good anything is relatively rare. Um, there, there's the possibility, in fact, um, we and other people are doing this, of um, gauging what your community um, finds both interesting and, um, and challenging as a way of providing a recommendation. Mm -hmm. And the community may be your local public library community. It might be a community of interest. It might be an academic community. Could be a digital community. Right. All of these, oh, all of these are digital communities. I'm assuming that in almost oh. all cases, these are going to be connected on the network. Uh, they don't have to be, but that's really what's going to where it's going to be. Uh, can, I, can I just say, I, like the Brazil Chile game, let's just allow this to go into overtime, and you guys right. can talk about it after the session. Fine. And, um, people can can, especially the librarians can um, can come and comment and um, and uh, argue with Andrew. I, I do want to keep moving it on. It. This, a but lot of that is about markets, about. right? Because markets can be community-based markets as well. Yeah, sure, right? absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of people here, I think, they, they, they come from companies, they're interested in how to get their message across. They're interested in the power of brand and how this new marketplace changes what brands mean. And one elegant theory is that brands are essentially a signal. And in the olden days, whatever that means, when brands had a monopoly on their signal, it was powerful. Because brands are powerful when you don't have other information. Like, Toothpaste is a good example. I don't know what toothpaste is best for my enamel, so I only buy toothpaste that begins with C. I only buy <laughs> Crest and Colgate. But there's lots and lots of choices where I don't need a brand to tell me what to do. Say, what book to buy, I'll go to Amazon. Or what, what restaurant to have brunch in, I'll go to Yelp. And so you have all of these uh, peer-based information systems that are competing with the power of brands and diluting the signal of brands and making them weaker. Mark, in this environment where there's so much information diluting the signal of brands, how can people who are CMOs in this world possibly <laughs> com compete with the flood? Let me take issue with one thing you said. There is the power of those referrals actually to enhance a brand. And that can be pushed very, very assertively, and also it can be pushed intimately. And I really think the way you get through all the noise is you know where you want to go as a marketeer, and you push it in an artful way using big data or using knowledge you have about your client or customer, and you are very, very aggressive about it. And when I say aggressive, meaning A to B, it's linear. And more of that goes on now than uh, overall brand imaging and brand marketing. Can you give us an example that we can sure. chew on? Sure. Um, I, I fish a lot. OK? 
okay? And I buy uh, fishing gear uh, in Europe. I buy fishing gear in the United States. I, I use Abu Garcia uh, reels. By actually buying them in England, where I used to live, and buying them also in Toronto, uh, in New York, their database has me now as avidly spending my money on their gear, and they proactively get a hold of me through uh, various ways. They'll text me. They will um, actually get a hold of me via LinkedIn, and they will also market to me in the old-fashioned way with email. They did not used to do that, and it's right to me, and they get into me with special pricing all the time. It's the only reel that I personally use now. In business-to-business situations, we do it at Thomson Reuters. Our competitors do it. Uh, We provide information services, and what we do is we understand what information is being used by a client, and we also, uh, we then understand where they might need additional information in the future, and we proactively get in front of it with our brand. And it's very, very surgical. That's great. David, how do you, as a depressed optimist, see companies, CMOs, sort of fighting back against sort of the digital flood? Well, in general, I really, really want them to lose. Um, as my friend Doc Searles said in, in a book that we co-authored in 2000, The Clue Train Manifesto, markets are conversations, and I think that is is true, is, uh, is still true. Uh, markets on the net, net, markets now are conversations. Um, but I think it's a terrible um, mistake for companies to think about brands and marketing in the way that as signal or as messages, which is the more normal way. Mm-hmm. You're doing information theory, but usually it's, you know, it's messages. Right. Which is also, anyway. Um, because that implies uh, that the internet is a medium, and a medium is a channel through which a message gets passed, and the medium is a bad medium if it changes the message, it corrupts the message. Um, but that's exactly what the internet is not. It is not a channel. Things only move through the internet because they have caught the interest of somebody enough so that she or he wants to move it. And in moving it, we're putting our name behind it. We retweet something, not because it's a, it's a brand message, that, but because we think it's interesting and we think our friends will find it interesting. And we define ourselves socially by what we put through. Things only move through the medium because the medium through the Internet because we move them, which, which me, and we alter them. We, we add a little comment. We deconstruct it. We make fun of the commercial message. Um, this is not a med- it's a mistake to think about it as a medium. It is far better, I think, to think about it as a set of wide-ranging conversations. And every time a marketer manages to force a mess force our attention onto a message that we don't really care about, you know, a conversational angel loses its wings. I mean, some, it, it's a, it corrupts the internet. It makes the internet a less trustworthy place, less of an expression of our human interest, which Andrew disagrees with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I just have more faith in the resilience of the internet than you do. I, I don't think mm-hmm. big brands pushing their message is going to is going to drastically weaken or corrupt anything that's going on. Andrew, let me let me ask you a slightly different question. You know, we've talked a little bit about how a lot of trends that are happening right now make consumers stronger in the marketplace. But one of the other themes of your book, and one of the other huge themes in the U.S. economy is that consumers are being weakened in one other really, really important way, which is that they have less money. And if you have a, an age of robots in which the owners of capital and the owners of robots are basically in charge of all production, and we can't find good jobs outside of you know, food services and uh, home health care specialists to, to put less educated Americans. How, how, do these two, how does this paradox seem to work out in, in which consumers have less means than ever and yet are somehow more empowered by information than ever? 
They only have less means in the one very important sense that you're talking about, which is dollars to spend on stuff. And I don't want to trivialize that at all. We spent a lot of our book on that. It, the apocryphal story is about Henry Ford II and Walter Ruther, who was the head of the auto workers union going through a highly automated factory. And they were kidding with each other. So Ford points to some of the machinery and says, hey, Walter, how are you going to get these robots to pay union dues? And Ruther, without missing a beat, says, hey, Henry, how are you going to get them to buy cars? <laughs> the, the trends, some of them are really disquieting. We really are seeing a polarization in the economy, a hollowing out of the middle class. It, it's becoming tougher to be a classic middle class American citizen, person, consumer, that's a problem for all of us because the large, stable, prosperous American middle class has been one of the great jewels of our society. There's a lot of evidence that that is under a lot of threat. So what do we do about it? We spend a lot of time talking about it. The right answer is not to try to shut off the technologies or to revert to some kind of modern-day Luddite philosophy. Uh, the right answer is to get out our Econ 101 playbook and try to restore economic growth. The robots are not about to take all of our jobs tomorrow. Our immediate problem is that our growth is anemic, our immigration policies are a mess, our infrastructure is a C minus grade. You know, these are not radical steps. We should be doing the econ basics. Is there a response to the panel to the, the weakening of the consumer? When, when I think about the weakening of the, of the consumer, um, I, I think about the economy weakening them more than anything, anything else. When I, you go back to the marketplace issue that we're talking about, I do think that empowers the mm. consumer to have the ability to choose what they want to buy, buy it more quickly, and also perhaps get more value from that supplier later on through predictive analytics. And express themselves that they're unhappy with the way they're being treated or marketed right. to or... Yeah, exactly, which should lead to better service overall. Should. Well, and one of the other themes that's happening, uh, just one, one second, then we'll get to you, David, is that because of abundance, the price of some things, particularly digitized entertainment, has fallen tremendously. Mm -hmm. And so the ability of people who don't have a tremendous amount of money to play games on their phone and to listen to music and to engage in things that are fun, and if they're gamers and enjoy that and have goals and make them feel good about themselves, the price of these things has fallen because of technology, which in many other ways is, is making other things you know, unaffordable like healthcare or housing and things like that, although those are economic. But you're exactly right. The idea that we have less access to some really important things like information and communication and entertainment, that's a joke. Of course we have greater access to all these things. Right. That's certainly... So you should understand that Andrew and I are, are friends and agree like 99%. <laughs> so um, we have greater access, but the price of, of those very things actually have gone up. So games now are 60... If you pay for it, if you pay for a PC or Atari, uh, Atari, Jesus. <laughs> Atari. Uh, console, Xbox game. I think you can get those for free. Yeah. <laughs> Atari for five cents on Amazon. Yeah. Um, those games have gone up. They're like 60 bucks now. The price of books has continued to go up, even, and the artificial price of ebooks has continued, has not declined the way that it should. At the level of many of these items, which, if you're actually paying for them, it's way more expensive uh, or continuing to go up. It, uh, well, we are seeing a rise of. Um, more casual games of uh, ebooks written by um, amateurs, uh, um, and uh, and the rise of uh, people knowing how to get stuff for free, all of which I'm totally in favor of. Absolutely. Nevertheless, we're not seeing a sort of hollowing out of pricing at, at the higher end. Yeah. Well, one place I want to take this discussion is um, uh, I was at the at the Ford conference um, in um, in Detroit uh, three days ago. 
And one of the big themes of the Ford Conference was big data. And they said, we're using big data to figure out exactly what people want, when they want it. This is allowing us to build better cars and the kind of cars that people are going to want tomorrow. But the first quote of the conference, which was never really squared, was that famous, amazing Henry Ford quote that is, if I ask people what they really want, they would say, faster horses. And so do these two things how do these two things fit together? And this is a question for the whole panel. If on the one hand, we're using big data to better understand what consumers will want tomorrow, but figuring out those sort of moonshot things are really what they're going to want in 10 years, are the, are the conclusions from big data sometimes keeping us from building bigger, braver things that people might not immediately respond to when they see it? So I think it, depend, it depends. So we have some examples earlier on the panel of that, but there's another place where big data I think is completely liberating, which is for me a really exciting, non-depressed, optimistic uh, thing, um, which is the rise of platforms, of open platforms, where everybody can have access to the set, uh, to the set of data, and in some, some companies are making their own assets, information assets available, so that they can create things that the company did not think of, could not anticipate. And this is a fundamental, from my point of view, a fundamentally different way of thinking about how the future works. Whether it's something planned and anticipated by a few people who have the means to make it, or whether the future is an open platform in which we can all participate and make the things that matter to us and then share those things. Did you choose some examples of, uh, of that point? Well, I don't want to go back to libraries. <laughs> Feel free to go back to libraries. I can give at our company, at Thomson Reuters, what we have is we have a platform of financial data. We provide the users of that platform the ability to take our data, mingle it with theirs, create their own apps, and create value for themselves and their, their clients without consulting us. And the reason they can do it, we have it uh, as an open community. And uh, we knew this was in high demand by talking to our clients. and so. Uh, if Henry Ford was talking about someone that uh, talking to someone and he said, "Do you want to go faster?" and you left the horse out of the question, you probably could get to perhaps an automobile being created. When we engage our clients with predictive uh, data analytics as well as just human conversations, we probe. We try to understand where their pain points are. It's called being customer back, mm -hmm. and by doing that, we are then able to think about what they need with them but applying what we have already to that formula. So a great example of it is um, FX trading. So we're talking about marketplaces. What we have had for years is a marketplace that we created. It's online, and it brings the right people together to change foreign exchange. Right? It gets better every quarter from feedback we get on how to make it better. If you synthesize all the information we get from all the users, it tends to create a rising tide that lifts all boats. And if we implement it quickly, then the platform, the marketplace, becomes more efficient, and that's better for everybody. It's better for the people using it because they should be able to make more trades, more money. It's better for us uh, because our retention rates on that platform and that marketplace um, are high and get higher and higher. So I think that's an example of an open platform. Derek, to, please, uh, to answer your question, it seems like the worst way to um, give customers great new products is to ask them what they want. It just doesn't work very well. A much better way is to combine that, that spark, that, that creativity, that design genius, that, that idea of what people might actually value with a huge amount of data and experimentation. So at the TED conference this year, there were designers from both Facebook and Twitter who talked about designing in this big data world. And they were very 
consistent with Hitchhiker. They said, look, it starts with some spark about this would be a cooler like button, for example. Then we put a version out there, and the virtue we have with our scale is to get very quick, very good feedback about whether this actually is a better like right. button or not. There's a really cool case a little while back. The head designer at Google left because he still wanted to work in that old mode of, I am the design guru, I will inflict a new design on the world, and the world will love it. And Google said, okay, here's your idea. Why don't we go test it? Why don't we go see if they like this shade of blue better than that shade of blue? Because, poof, you're going to contest my ideas, and they said, see you later. This, you know. I remember when that happened. Yeah. Speaking of Google, Hal Varian, uh, the chief economist, has a great, great term, um, which is, you can't predict the future. So do your best to, quote, predict the present. And predicting the present is precisely this idea. It's how can I measure exactly what's going on so that we test our products after they come out rather than trying to predict the product that will come out. Because like the classic example in the last, I suppose, 90 years since the, um, uh, the Rouge first opened is the iPhone. There was a, a Reuters study of 19,000 people around the world. Do you want an all-in-one device? The country that, in, that was number one in saying we do not think we need this was, I, th it was, I think, the Chile... And then the U.S. The U.S. was like, we love our phones. We love our cameras. I love my MP3 player. Why would I want to combine all these things into one worse product that somehow tries to shove it all together? How could we possibly know we went to the iPhone before we saw the and, iPhone? And, we didn't. The, and, the, and every old school designer that I talk to brings up the Steve Jobs example. The number of people who think they're the next Steve Jobs is much greater than the number of people who are the next Steve Jobs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of numbers greater than zero, no one. So the platform idea, that I totally agree. Um, the platform idea is a little different because uh, it says that in addition to um, the what you just described, um, there is a, a value also in allowing the worldwide community to uh, create what is what meets their needs in particular, which may be a very small set of people. Uh, and you asked for an example. A uh, quick example is what's been going on in, in the world of, of games, you know, Atari and the like, um, where they have opened up their assets, their character creation tools, the mapping tools, uh, which they have invested millions of dollars in. They open it up. Anybody who wants to can create their own version of the game. You don't like the way this game plays? Good. Make your own. You don't like the characters? Fine. Make your own. Uh, this. Um, provides tremendous additional value to the game. It's, people can now play the game in many different forms, which adds value to the platform. So, so why don't you like apps? Apps seem like a classic example uh, of a platform. Oh, I hate apps. <laughs> I sense an inconsistency. This is people producing and consuming things that they value on a platform. That's, isn't that exhibit A? Yeah, well, so the thing I don't like about apps, because there are things I like about them, is as opposed to the web, which I grew up in. Um, is that an app is a closed world. Now, the wonderful thing from my point of view about the web is that every time you post a page or a blog post, if you remember what blogging was, um, or, you, uh, or you write a comment, all of that is additive. It all makes the web a little bit richer. Maybe a tiny bit, you know, a little bit richer. The more links you put in, the more webby the web is, the more valuable it is. And that's not true for apps, which especially the professional. So hold on, no, no, no. The most common, the most common apps I use are Twitter, LinkedIn, Waze, and Facebook. Right. I think that I think yeah. that's true for every one of those apps. That my contributions make it bigger and stronger. Yes. So it's, you're, you are correct. It's not all apps. It's rather the rise of apps as an alternative to the web. And you, you're talking about websites that have portable versions which they've appified but are still contributing to the web. And that escapes entirely from my, my uh, depression. Good. We're glad we could lift your spirits. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, we're going to move to a uh, uh, question and answer. Um, does anybody want to be uh, uh, the first guinea pig? We have, uh, you'll be second and first right over there. Okay, I can do it. Uh, you, sir, one, one question. Do we, have, do we have two microphones? Right yeah. We do. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I can do it loud still. Um, this has all been about digital, and uh, I spent a lot of time in that space and um, a lot of interesting things. But um, one of the key aha numbers to me is um, Amazon's been in the market 16 years, done a great job. We'd all agree with that. The fact of the matter, though, is after 16 years, e-commerce sales as a percent of total retail sales is 6%. 94% is still offline. The reason for that is that there are real benefits in offline still, consumer benefits, and um, the touch and feel locality, I would call it, is that. So a lot of the tools you're talking about here really aren't going to be most leverageable to plumb offline, online sales. They're going to be most relevant to spread the uh, internet values across the whole marketplace. And that's how you get to digital, I mean mobile, which is going to allow that to happen. And I think the, the implications of that are going to be profound because all the Best Buys who are rushing to get on the internet and still should are going to need better to defend what they have um, and they're going to be businesses formed as extensions of the offline world. And one of the things you said that I, I've had a long career, I've got a lot of gray hair, new products are not either or as to whether consumers can envision them or not. If you have a context to present them in, they can envision them. Um, if they're leaps of fancy, which is a lot of the way the internet thinks, no. But um, there's a lot of, uh, even when you critique the way people build businesses on the internet, there's little or no um, disciplined consumer activity on the way to the ideas. Thank you very much. Want to uh, talk a little bit about e-retail? One point I would make just to start off is um, uh, I wrote a column about, about Amazon about a year ago. And one interesting point they made is that even though the share of total retail that is, e-mar- e-mar- that is uh, online, uh, that's e-tail, um, it, it's now I, I think actually around 8%. It's growing extremely steadily. Um, uh, it's grown basically at a straight line. And there's no reason to think that it's not going to continue to grow in a straight line for the near future. But there's sort of three trips that people tend to make when they buy something. The first is the sort of browsing trip, let's sort of see what's at the mall. The second is the narrowing trip, and the third is the purchase. The sort of let's look around, um, that whole behavior has, I think, shifted majority online. This is why malls all over the US are shuddering, because it's just so much easier to look at all the stuff that's available on our couch than getting into a car and driving somewhere and buying the Auntie Anne's and the smoothie and all of that. So I think that, that you're seeing the first two trips sort of narrowing down the abundance before we finally go out to touch the pants that we think we're going to like, touch the shirt, um, you know, actually hold the iPhone in, in our hands. So the effect of, uh, of e-commerce on the entire retail uh, market um, isn't uh, 
isn't visible solely in, in the sales numbers. I mean, it's affecting the way that people are shopping for goods in the first place. So, something else I would add, if you look at people who are between 10 and 20, how much they use their handheld. So this is uh, supporting the mobile point that was made. They interact on every aspect of their life, social, um, educational now, uh, as well as purchasing via their, uh, their handheld. When they actually have more purchasing power, they are used to engaging with e-retail, and that will cause that straight line perhaps even to accelerate in maybe five to ten years. Now, actually, most consumers use their uh, phone to sh shop against the local site, showrooming and the like. But the uh, things like geocoding, um, the trends that are just uh, nascent today are going to mean that um, there's going to be an incredible aggregation of information around, say, you're a hotel. Um, you're going to be able to know what the customers who stay in your hotel do in the local markets. You're going to be able to build databases like the internet has today. And I think there's a massive set of businesses that are going to be formed around this evolution that are sort of broadly defined e-tailing, but it's not a well-defined term. All right. I think, I think we're going to move on to the next question, but thank you, sir. We're going to go here, too, and then you're the third. My question's a simple one. What, how do people that are older even know that there are those apps or those 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 email addresses and all of that i mean it's not something that you just you're not speaking for yourself are you <laughs> was this question okay. crowdsourced on the table yeah, look, um, look I'll, I'll i'll underline how big a problem it is this is kind of what i'm supposed to do for a living and i find myself going Huh? All the time these days, because some 17-year-old tells me about something that's fantastic. I, I, I think like hang out with your children and grandchildren a lot more, and have them show you the five things that's they're using the most on their phone. You, you're going to learn a lot that way. Not all of which will calm you down. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's also research by Esther Hargitay and others that shows that the digital generation is not nearly as savvy as we assume they are. So. The information, uh, the skills are, are not a natural set of skills, and we need Seven to how? Their ability, uh, in, in, in a couple senses, one is simply to use the internet. Um, it's not a natural thing. It's a highly weird place. Um, and second of all, um, the ability to uh, think critically about what they see on there. It's true for all of us. It's true for all of us across every medium, but it's certainly true. Uh, we, we cannot assume that children have a natural ability to leverage critical thinking skills against what they see on the net. <laughs> <laughs> Did I understand better? Yeah, yeah, quick follow-up, and then, and then we'll get to you. How safe is it to give your credit card in most of these situations to buy something online? You're fine. I might not be investing a lot in bitcoins, but use all the credit cards you want. Except for Fisher fishing, and you know there are corrupt sites, but generally it's mainstream site. Fine. The internet is not going to bankrupt you, unless you answer those emails from the Nigerians, in which case it will bankrupt. You. <laughs> Good luck. 
So, uh, Thanks. Yeah, it seems that some of the most disruptive new businesses have been in areas where uh, conventional wisdom would have said they wouldn't be, right? People would rather walk into a bookstore than buy online. They'd rather read a newspaper than read it digitally. I mean, you can kind of go on and on. So uh, given where all of you are and, and as you look out, what are the next businesses that you see that ultimately will be disrupted? You know, if I could answer that question, I, I'd, be on the entrepreneur, I'd be on the entrepreneur panel as opposed to the alleged wise guy panel here. That, to me, that's, that's absolutely the point about innovation is that a lot of the ideas I've come across when I first heard about them, I said, well, that's extremely stupid. 140 characters and no more? Who on earth would think a self-edited encyclopedia? What? Uh, but we, we keep on getting surprised. I, I, I completely agree with David. The great thing about this huge digital playground that we're building is that it opens up more opportunities for us to be surprised and shocked by the kinds of innovation that we're seeing. If I were competing against a great peer economy company like Uber or Airbnb, I would be worried these days. And I, we, we would see exactly what we're seeing, which is the incumbents trying to enlist the regulators to help them fight this rear guard action. And I'm um, forgive me, pissing off us consumers as a result. My hometown of Cambridge, Massachusetts just tried to pass explicitly anti-Uber legislation. I, I could not believe what I was seeing. Yeah, I mean, Airbnb, I think, is a perfect example of this is an in- hotels are an industry that because they're entire physically space-based should not be, they should withstand the disruption. Along comes Airbnb, a crazy idea, who would accept, et cetera, et cetera, and, or couch surfing for that matter. Yeah. Right. Airbnb now is the largest, has more rooms in the total aggregate of hotels in the no, world. It's, no, 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 it's not that. Not bad. even close. <laughs> That's a point that you hear on the internet, <laughs> but when you apply your critical thinking skills, it turns out to be false. They do, I think, have 90 castles in Europe, so that's, 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 cool. that's enough castles, right. I think. Um, well, an interesting book that, that um, I think was written by Duncan Watts, who's the, the researcher that you referenced yeah. um, with the music experiment, where he basically ranked music differently and people just constantly said the song that was their favorite was the song that they happened to see was number one. Yeah. His book is called Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. And it's sort of what, you, what you're saying. Is that it's a, it's a it's really obvious. profound book. It's a great oh, book. So, oh, it's such a good book. Yeah. Because you realize how often you tell these post hoc stories to rationalize what you just learned right. as opposed to being able to predict it in advance, which is why my ground rule for this economy that we're creating is get out of the way and let the innovators do their work. Because if you think you know the story about the economy, you're probably kidding. You're certainly kidding yourself. Just really quickly, here's this great example about the Mona Lisa, about trying to yeah. explain why the Mona Lisa is the most famous painting in the world. I dare you, or a friend that you hang out with later tonight, explain why the Mona Lisa is the most famous painting in the world without simply describing the Mona Lisa. As it, the most famous as painting the most famous in the world. Painting. Yeah. It's pretty much impossible. You end up simply attributing it, it's saying all the attributes of this thing are responsible for the reason that it has the fame that it does, that it has the success that it does. But it has no predictive power. So we could stand here and say, well, the, the, the trick, the formula is convenience plus abundance. And you have convenience plus abundance for books, for convenience plus abundance for television. That is the formula for uh, uh, disrupting that industry. But this is really hard. If you have convenience plus abundance for clothes, you're not immediately going to disrupt clothes because some people still really like feeling the zip-up hoodie before they buy it, especially in San Francisco. So uh, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to answer the question specifically. And if we could, we would, um, we would be billionaires. Uh, is there a, f- a fourth question here? Let's go here for number four. And is that, is that a hand over there? And that's number five. Uh, let's talk about consumers that are investors. 
Um, you've used uh, Amazon time and again as a reference point. Uh, let's talk about Amazon and their profitability for a moment. They've been in business many years. Everybody knows that. We've all used them. But they're not making money, and they have never made money. The question is, what kind of a model is this when it comes to being a business? And this is true of many Internet companies. They're being bought and sold for enormous prices without ever having made a nickel. And so the question is, will they ever? And will they ever become, you know, something that is more like the model of business that we have come to expect? Let's be a little bit careful. Um, Facebook and Twitter and Google are massively profitable companies. These are not castles made out of air and future promises. The, I, I believe the reason that investors are so happy on with Amazon over the years is the promise that when we decide to ratchet down the growth engine and ratchet up the profitability engine, we can do that in a way that will make you happy. Amazon at least breaks even and has grown like a weed. There's clearly an asset, well, I think, there's clearly an asset bubble going on with some of the valuations we're seeing for some of the small consumer internet startup companies. But this is a different world than we were in in 1988 and 1999, where, like you say, there were these promises that had no users, no customers, no eyeballs, no nothing, getting bought and sold for tons of money. That's just not really what's going on anymore. Um, and when you think about business-to-business business, uh, digital information provision, the digital solutions are much more profitable quite often than the old model. Mm. And so that's just one, one example where profit actually was derived very, very quickly. Mm. Yeah. The, the last point I would add is that um, you know, Internet companies at the turn of the century weren't making any money. Amazon makes $75 billion, has $75 billion in revenue a year. So it, it's a business. They're just spending an enormous amount of money to build factories all over the world because the shipping of these things is extremely expensive. Um, but your, your skepticism is, is on point. I think there's a lot of people wondering when investors are going to pull the rug under Amazon and say, all right, we gave you, what was it, 16 years? <laughs> now we expect a profit. Um, well, right in the back, I think, was number five. Oh, and then, uh, yeah. And then right next to you is number six. All right. Sure. Um, you, just talk about another industry for a second, retail. Um, you mentioned that the malls in America are having difficulty. Do you have any data with respect to that, malls in particular and retail stores secondarily? And relatedly, what about the clothing industry? Are there any innovations that are foreseen that will change the way these kinds of businesses are conducted? I, I, I don't have the statistic on me for the, the percentage shrinking of malls. I, I've, I've written a little bit about... Um, uh, how uh, commercial developers are simply acknowledging that the mall as an institution particularly for, uh, for kids, uh, for teenagers, is, is declining tremendously. And it's partly because of the showrooming aspect of retail. And it's also partly because young people don't drive nearly as much as they used to. Um, they, spend, they talk to people on their phones. And so it's easier to shop for Amazon in one app and text in another than it is to maybe spend a lot of money and get into a car and um, and actually do the, the shopping in the mall physically. Um, but if you guys want to chime in on other aspects of retail. I, don't know. I, I can't give you any kind of comprehensive answer. When I want to get smart about how the world is changing, uh, I, I'll use a variant of your quote, Derek. There's a, the science fiction author William Gibson has a great way to say it. He says, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. So I go out to San Francisco and hang out with my friends there to see where the future is the farthest along. I, 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 and some of them are... Um, women younger than me with a great deal more style than I have. And the way that they're doing a lot of their shopping these days is they wait for a box to show up every month with clothes that some algorithm has picked out for them. 
which makes no sense. These are the last people I thought would ever shop by outsourcing their, their style decisions. And I say, what percentage of these things do you wind up keeping? And they say, oh, yeah, well over half. They do a great job of curating a look for me. And instead of relying on someone in a boutique, they're relying on big data to help refine the judgment and, and help these people dress more individualistically. It, again, these are not things that make sense to me, but they appear to be working. They should be checking with a librarian. <laughs> I think that, you've just blown up your own argument so conclusively. A librarian shopping app. That's what's going to come out of this panel discussion. Frumpy.com. Right, right before we get to, to number six right there, and you, you're next on the list, um, what Zara's does is really interesting, and it fits right into the predicting the present um, yeah. uh, theme that we've established. Zara's is ex extremely good at uh, using data um, and, and really fine uh, pinpointing to figure out what fashions are popping up all over the world. Trends. And then they have, right, the, the trends. They, they can see the trends just as they're bubbling up, the, the, the acceleration of them. And then because it's fast fashion, they send clothes that are just like that to that city. That's Zara's, you said? Zara's, yeah. Z-A-R-A. And uh, what's, what's really interesting about that, it's exactly what we've been talking about. No, no, actually, it's not. They don't use algorithms at all. They use the human judgment of their store managers around the world to say, the cool 22-year-olds who are walking in my store over the past two days seem to be dressing like this. How quickly can you get it to me? And the answer is like two or three weeks at the outside. Right. Th thank but you. it's a right. very, very human system, right. not an algorithmic one or a big data one, as I would understand it. But still, it's, it's the ability to, if you can't predict the future of fashion, yeah. which is impossible, you can predict the present. Yep. With people who That's are situated right. all over the world sending information back to headquarters saying, you got to get shorter skirts to Marrakesh. Um, right over there. I wonder if any of you would like to comment on disruption in the political marketplace. That, that reminds me of... Um, the great anecdote, there's a reporter who asked Gandhi um, what he thought of Western civilization, and he said, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> what do I think of disruption in the political sphere? I think it would be a good idea. Yeah, so the question is why that hasn't happened. And Tim O'Reilly is, is here, and he, he's been um, leading the, the concept of government as platform and has been involved in, in many levels, including way high up in, in this. So you should... Go listen to Tim. He's very smart. And his fiancée, Jen, who's talking tonight at 8. Mm. Yes. Um, I've been, so I've been a little involved in, in some various campaigns, um, including the Dean campaign. Uh, and I've been, this is a depressed optimism. Right? Um, you would think that this would be an area that's completely ripe because politics has been driven like a marketing campaign, a top-down broadcast system in which the uh, candidate or the candidate's um, handlers come up with a message and broadcast it through... Their, their channels, and that's a terrible, that just mm. makes politics stupid. It, it's a terrible system. You couldn't design a worse one. And now we have the ability to do person-to-person uh, -person, uh, at a massive scale. So you would expect that things would change. And the thing that hasn't, the further up you look in the, in the chain, that is from local to, to national, the less the change has happened. The disruption is harder as the power is more entrenched. Um, at the lower levels, you do see lots of change. And I, all that I would point to very quickly is that we all... Um, have our behavior in politics has been radically transformed already. We had not, it used to be back in the Atari days that you would go to the candidate's office and get a mimeo sheet if you wanted to know what the candidate's position was. You get like a one-page mimeo sheet. Now we expect endless amounts of information, endless amounts of discussion and, and contextualizing of this information through our social networks, through our, our online friends and off. This is a fundamental 
change mm -hmm. in how politics works. It's not a sufficient change. I'm totally uh, with Andrew. We need something. And listen, uh, sorry, Larry Lessig is talking mm -hmm. as well. And you oh. must listen to what Larry yep. says about reforming the, the system of corruption that we call campaign finance. And nothing will change until that changes. That's the conclusion that Lessig came to after working for years on trying to get copyright change. And then Aaron Swartz, whose movie you can also see, um, convinced Lessig that the only way you'll change any area of important law like that is by first changing the political uh, finance system. Sorry, I meant that to be really short. So from my point of view, there already has been significant disruption uh, in politics when it comes to fundraising. If you look at how much money Obama was able to compile very quickly, that was done through a marketplace that was created. It was created online, uh, and it gave, uh, at that time, it gave his campaign a distinct advantage. So I, I call that a disruptor. And, and whether or not politics writ large is being disrupted, running an election is entirely different than it was a decade ago. Mm -hmm. You can go read some great post-mortems about the ground games of the two campaigns. Or watch Hillary Clinton in a few days. But, and and the, my conclusion from it is you might want to run against a geek. You clearly don't want to run against the person the geeks are backing. The, the, the analytic power of the Obama 2012 campaign was yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. And Haley learned that lesson. Uh, we have time for uh, one more question. Oh, gosh. Uh, we'll go right here. Comment on online education today and 10 years from now? Um, there, there's... And there was an initial surge of enthusiasm about online education. Khan Academy, Coursera, Udacity, all these MOOCs, all these educational resources, which are fantastic, many of which are freely available online. There was this initial surge of enthusiasm because we thought that they were going to be a rising tide that would lift all boats and help all students to some degree. That's not reality yet. It's not even close to reality yet. We have a ton more work to do, and it's naive to think that technology alone is going to help some of our troubled systems, some of our troubled communities. So that, that's, the, that's the great hope. I don't know if we're ever going to get there. What, what educational technology is today, and it's already pretty fantastic, is what I would call a diamond detector. In other words, if there are kids out there who have the combination of tenacity and intellectual curiosity and whatever else, there are resources available to help them get smarter and better. Uh, and those resources are just so much orders of magnitude better than anything they had five or ten years ago. So we have wonderful diamond detectors these days. I would love to see educational technology be more of a rising tide. I'm not, I'm not content with the diamond detector. I'm just really thankful that it's there. You know, we haven't figured it out. We all haven't figured it out yet. Um, I'm particularly, uh, in addition to what Andrew just listed, I'm also really thrilled by the rise of sort of iterative collaborative learning by which I mean a site like Stack Overflow, where if you're a software developer and you have a question, you just can't figure yeah. out how to do something, you go there, you ask, strangers yeah. will provide answers and then comment on their answers and improve the code until at the bottom you've got your answer and you can see how they got it. They show their work. And this, this ethos that we should not be learning in private so that we get better when we can just as easily learn in public so that everybody gets a little bit smarter is, is a fantastic and wonderful change. And I would say 10 years from now, you're going to see a higher percentage of people getting um, university uh, and graduate degrees online. That trend continues to, to tick up. So it goes back to the very beginning when we were talking about marketplaces uh, favoring the consumer because it's more mm -hmm. convenient, easier. I, I think you're going to see a trend over the next 10, 20 years where more and more people are going to get their degrees predominantly online. Everybody, thank you so much. This has been such a fun panel. Thank, thank you. Thank the panelists.